Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Boring, Oregon. Now, Bear, I have no idea. We had Jen on a bit ago from uh, Portland. Delightful. And so I think if she's representative of the Oregon people, you got to expect that they're delightful people. But boring? I don't think of Oregon as boring. No, I don't either. So why would someone want to live in boring Oregon? And it's real. I mean, of late, by the way, listeners, we have been picking real towns. <laughs> These are not made up towns. These are real towns. And so we're always a little surprised about who would have named a city in Oregon boring. But there it is. Now, maybe it's boring in terms of mining, you know, boring like, oh, like, like a boring, like, boy, that person's dull and I'm not interested. Yeah, I tend to think of that city boring as being misplaced. It should be in Iowa. Yes, yes. In terms of if we were relating it to people. Right. In fact, we could come up with a lot of state that that might have a good application for, but not necessarily Oregon. And I think in light of my reference, there ought to be boring one, boring two, boring three, and ad infinitum for states like Iowa. that have more than one city named boring. Hey, now I have a dear friend who's just taken a presidency of a university in Iowa. So I have to be careful because if she listens in and catches this podcast, I'm going to catch some flack. If she's paying attention at all, I'm going to catch some flack. I consider that your problem. Well, anyway, we've been talking about dialogue and been having a pretty good conversation. Today, we wanted to do two things. One is we wanted to really talk about how do you know? I mean, clearly, what are the markers? What are the indicators that you are involved in a conversation that we would characterize as dialogue? And then secondly, one of the things that you wanted to do, and I'm going to hopefully let you take the lead on this, is turn this more towards one-on-one conversations. The last three or four sessions we've been talking, if we haven't been saying it explicitly, we've been at least implying it consistently that we're talking about group communication, group interaction. And so what we want to do is explore how does any of this conversation around dialogue apply to one-on-one interaction, right? So we want to- Right, exactly. So often you mentioned the benefits of dialogue uh, being shared uh, vision, shared understanding, a deepening of relationships. Alignment, which you made me explain in depth. Right. And that it's the most productive form of communication. Well, I think that's an important set of variables to apply to one-on-one conversation, that we want those same things out of one-on-one exchange. And so I would like us to spend some time on how do the principles, the concept of dialogue apply to one-on-one conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's do it then. So let's talk a little bit about how do you know? And I'm going to run through a list. And what I want to do is go back and forth on each one of these items, drive them a little deeper. We can mention them on the surface. They make sense, I think. But let's explore them and talk about the why. So what's that all about? How's that important? So the first item in terms of how do we know is we know that you're in dialogue when there is an increased a level of genuine inquiry. And what I'm going to say there is that when you're in conversations with others, And I think the one-on-one application is clearly self-evident here. And you begin to discover in this conversation, people are genuinely spending more time inquiring about your point of view, about what you're saying, about what you're thinking. That's the way you know that you've gone into dialogue maybe versus other conversations. So any thoughts on that? Well, I would ask you a question. 
in as much as you've identified it as genuine inquiry, then I would say, what makes inquiry genuine? Great question. I have an answer. I would never have guessed you might have an answer. Go ahead. If I think about polite discussion and even skillful discussion, I often think that people ask questions, but not with a genuine attempt to understand or know where you're coming from. But they ask questions because they're either being polite or they think it's the right thing to do, or they're building a case for their own position and they're using your statements to do it. So when I think about genuine inquiry, what I'm really thinking about is people who are asking questions to genuinely understand more. Now, remember, when we talked about dialogue, one of the three elements that's critical to dialogue is the notion that we create an increased level of shared understanding and shared meaning. And I think when we think about discussion or debate, we could be involved in both those kinds of conversations and not have any shared meaning. We think we understand what the other person is saying, but what's most important is our position. So my reaction would be when I say genuine inquiry, I'm saying I have a legitimate, authentic wanting to know your position and wanting to know what you're talking about as much as I want you to get a handle on what I'm talking about. My own experience with inquiry has been people think that inquiry is just a matter of asking questions. But when I ask the question, why in the world would you say that? That's not a genuine inquiry. Or how could you be so stupid as to? That's not a genuine inquiry. So it isn't just a matter of asking questions. It's a matter of asking questions for which you don't know the answer. You don't have any expectations of what the answer has to be and that you're interested in what the response is going to be. That seems to me to be more along the line of genuine or authentic inquiry. You even take me back to when we were talking about listening and we distinguish different kinds of questions. And one of the questions we said really contributes to more active listening, and I'm going to say contributes to genuine inquiry, is clarifying questions. So judgmental questions of any kind, which you gave two examples quickly, don't communicate genuine inquiry. Rhetorical questions don't communicate genuine inquiry. Probing questions, questions that say, I want to drive this a bit deeper, I want to explore, I want to examine, those kinds of questions are going to approach much more of the notion of genuine inquiry. That makes sense to me. Hopefully, it makes sense to our listeners. Now, another way you'll know is when there is more, I've used the word authentic listening, I'm going to go back to our concept of active listening. And there again, my reaction is how you can tell there is more of that going on is that balance between inquiry or asking questions and making statements, the difference between advocacy and inquiry. And so I'm going to suggest that when we are more authentically, actively listening, and I think we went through the listening behaviors, eye contact, asking questions, paraphrasing, reflecting, all of those things are demonstrated. So when we see more of those behaviors going on, So listeners, if you forgot about all that, go way back to the beginning episodes and tap back into what listening looks like, and you'll get a better idea of what we mean by being uh, more authentic and more active in your listening. Any additional thoughts on that one? No, I think that that's pretty clear. I, I would agree with you that authentic, active listening also can involve small spaces of silence. Mm-hmm. That kind of phenomenon where you're not rushing the conversation. When people are authentically listening, the conversation doesn't speed up. It tends to slow down just a bit so that people can take things in. So part of authentic listening to me, the pace is important. Mm-hmm. If people's approach verbally is to slow down a bit, that's always a comfort to me that good things are happening. Great observation. Really like that one. So another idea under how would you know is, and this I think may surprise some folks, is when there is actual confrontation. Oftentimes, 
I get pushed back when I talk about dialogue to executives, different leaders, and say, you're just asking us to be kinder, gentler. It's all about being nicer. And I say, no, dialogue has nothing to do with being nicer. It has to do with getting to really the deep level of conversation. And in fact, I really don't even think we're at a dialogue stage unless there is some issue involved in which there is some degree of tension, in which there is some confrontation going on. Polite discussion is all about being gentler, nicer, and not getting anything done. I think dialogue really is about accomplishing, way back to one of our earlier statements, three fundamental tasks in communicating with others, that is advancing an agenda, sharing understanding, and maintaining or enhancing the relationship. And so it is about that, and sometimes it just takes confrontation. Yeah, that confrontation for me is the obstruction or the obstacle to be overcome. Hmm. Because when someone says, well, they're pushing back, I'm not there with that. Okay, why don't you help me understand what causes that frustration for you? What causes that resistance, that opposition? Because I need to understand that as well. I'm in favor of this, but I need to understand what there is about what I'm saying that's causing some friction or some resistance. That confrontation is the way to overcome those obstacles. Mm Mm-hmm resolving whatever the tension is, whatever the issue is. You know, in fact, I was just thinking of that word tension and thinking in dialogue, we don't back off of the tension. We try to move through the tension. Exactly. Yes. And in discussion, we often do back off of the tension. The tension gets so significant that we want to move away from it. And in debate, we just overrun it. I mean, if there's tension, we don't care. We're just slamming through. So I think dialogue is the one communication type in which we try to move through the tension and we don't back off. Another one, and I think we have to move on because we're about halfway through the podcast and we didn't want to turn some attention to the one-on-one and how it relates to some of the things we're talking about, is that we know we're in dialogue when there is reduced defensiveness. And I've always found this one interesting and intriguing because I often think dialogue is that conversation that's going to raise some issues that people do get uncomfortable about. That in fact, it's at the moment of confrontation, it's at the moment of tension that we have the opportunity to break through. And what happens in discussion is that we become defensive because that's what we're asked to do. We're asked to defend our position. So in both types of discussion, polite discussion and even skill discussion, we're asked to present a view and then defend it. So it's not that we become defensive because we're emotionally defensive people. It's because we're actually playing out the role we're expected to play out in discussion. And then in debate, I think we become defensive because the other side is so assertive and so aggressive in stating their position and trying to destroy ours that it just flat out creates that adversarial relationship. So here we've got dialogue, and I find it very interesting that this is one of the most significant things I've seen as I've watched groups participate in dialogue is where there is an initial defensiveness and we have a kind of breakthrough. We still continue to talk about the difficult issues, but we do it with reduced defensiveness. Have you seen that? Yeah. What's your what's your reaction to that? Yeah, my, my my observation would be that in true dialogue, there is always going to be a level of discomfort. There's always going to be moments where people become uncomfortable. The difference between that and defensiveness is defensiveness is verbally holding your hands up and blocking what the other person is saying. And hmm. dialogue, when you become uncomfortable, you don't block what the other person's saying, you try and understand it. And I think that real dialogue You have to get comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable. That real dialogue is going to open elements of exchange that you are not ready for, that that you aren't sure that you know how to deal with. But it's exactly at that point that you don't throw your verbal hands up and block things. You just leave your hands down. You just leave your hands open and try to work with, assimilate that information in a way that you can understand it and then see if that 
relieves the discomfort. I absolutely love the distinction between discomfort and defensiveness, because it would be pretty easy to make those synonymous, that to be discomforted is to be defensive. And your notion that says, no, dialogue is not going to necessarily relieve the discomfort, but we should see a reduced defensiveness with you no longer having to put your hands up and block what's going on, but to try to deal with that and realize discomfort is a part of the ongoing process. Love that picture. Way to go, Bear. You're you're fulfilling some of our listeners' uh, expectations regarding you. And then lastly, and I find this one interesting, how do you know that you're in dialogue? And the observation is, you know that you're in dialogue when you can state the other person's position as well as your own. And I think as a facilitator, I've grown to actually push that envelope. I have said on occasion to someone in a group, what I want you to do is I want you to state Bill's position. Now, not yours. I know yours. Now, I want to hear you state his and actually use that as a way of getting people to gauge, do we even have an idea of what's going on here? Have I even been listening enough to get your position? And that often is a clear distinction for me. And so I love that. And I say to people who say, I want to engage in dialogue, well, then get ready to be able to state anybody else's position in the room as well as your own. What do you think of that? To me, that's a hallmark. Now, there is a play on words here. When you say you need to be able to state other people's positions as well as your own, what I know you to mean by that is not that you need to know their positions as well as they do. You don't have to become an expert in their position, but you have to at least be able to articulate it, the the major principles, the major points that they're making. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to state what their, their picture is, what they believe is true. Now, that may not be as thorough or as well-defined as they would do it, that's not the point. The point is when you're in a group and you're hearing people say, oh, so what I'm hearing you say then is this, and they get that mostly right, they've got that person's picture mostly right, that's what you want to see. That's the increased awareness. That's the increased articulation of others' position that you're looking for. No, we certainly don't need to be able to know their position as well as they do, but we need to be able to state it to their satisfaction. Oftentimes, we work on the idea of, I know their spot. I've heard what they've had to say a bunch of times. And so if we were to state it out loud and they weren't satisfied with that, then we haven't been able to state their position. So sometimes one of the checks you can use in conversation is to say, let me see if I've got your position right and state it and make sure that they've said, yeah, that's that's pretty close. That gets it said and do that check into the conversation. Right. Yeah. Given time. I'm going to throw it to you and say, let's now turn this to thinking about one-on-one and even for you to talk a little bit about the guests we're having come next week and how we're going to try to leverage this conversation into what he's going to share with us. Okay. Well, keep me tracking if I wander off. Bob and I, in our preparation for dialogue conversation and the idea that so much of it we've talked about is kind of a group orientation. I have a real natural instinct to want to make sure it also applies to individual conversation, one-on-one conversation. I think husbands and wives need to have dialogue. Parents and children need to have dialogue. Good friends need to have dialogue, which is to say you have to apply these principles in a one-on-one situation. And generally, if you want dialogue to take place, you have to do the work. Mm. You have to do the monitoring. As Bob said in a previous episode. Now, wait, are you re- are you referring to me in the third person? Bob said, uh, Bob said, Bob and I agreed. Are you talking about some other Bob? No, I'm talking about you. Okay. That I remember you saying, oh, okay. having said that in dialogue, someone has to monitor the process. Someone has to be alert and be committed to moving the process along, mm-hmm. which is increasing inquiry, making sure people stay open. Well, if I'm in dialogue with one other person, 
I have to do that work. I can't count on them to do the work of monitoring our conversation to see what the balance of inquiry and advocacy is. I can't ask them to do the work of making sure that we're creating kind of a flow, the, the river example you used. So when you intend to have dialogue on a one-on-one basis, you have to take on the responsibility of creating that possibility of dialogue by doing those fundamentals that make it work. And the intriguing aspect of that for me is you're really saying to our listener, if you really want to, based on what you're hearing, engage in dialogue one-on-one with your spouse, with your children, with friends, you're going to have to do double duty. You can't just be involved in the content of the conversation or be involved in what's going on. You're going to have to be very attentive to the process as well. And so it may take more energy. You need to be more intentional. And we've used that word in the past regarding dialogue in order for it to truly occur. Because what you're saying is one-on-one, you got to manage it. If you really want this kind of conversation, you got to manage it, right? That's where we're heading on that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that is a commitment you make to be both engaged and monitoring at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, in applying that, one special discipline that I've been involved in is the clinical therapy. And the goal of a clinical therapist, from my perspective, is to create dialogue with a client, but the dialogue is a client talking with themselves. You are the backdrop. You are the person creating that process. Now, a lot of people say, well, that sounds crazy in itself, trying to get a person to talk to themselves. Well, yes and no. What you want them to do is you want them to see something. You want them to understand something about what they're saying. So as a therapist, you kind of ask questions that get them to focus on those things they're ignoring, those things they may not be seeing, those things that could make a huge difference. So I consider an important part of clinical therapy is the clinician's ability to create a dialogue in which they're not so much engaged as one of the participants as much as they are this facilitator that this person can have this conversation with themselves. And when I hear you say it's the clinician's responsibility to create a dialogue for the for the person to essentially have a conversation with themselves, which is what I was laughing pretty strongly about, because it strikes me as, you know, a clinician could say, well, I've just turned your $2,000 problem into a $10,000 problem. But it is. <laughs> it is that's business. But another way of viewing this, and I think it's really a legitimate way of viewing it, is you want what we just went through, the outcomes of how do you know you want that kind of conversation in a clinical relationship. You want the person to be able to move through these processes and experience this kind of experience within this uh, clinical setting. The truth of it is very real. And it is a way of thinking about dialogue in the clinical setting. Now, our guest is, is a close friend who has 30, 35 years of clinical experience as a clinician. And his name is Rich Dombrowski, Dr. Dombrowski. And uh, he's going to be with us Mm. in an upcoming episode. And we're going to have a chance to have a straight up conversation with his view of how he tries to make that work in a clinical setting. Well, now, will he also be able to provide for us some therapy? Will we be able to get some counseling? Will I be able to get some help? Uh, Not unless you're willing to pay for it. (laughs) Stuff's not free. Stuff's not free. Not free. Okay. Till next week. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is. 
almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.